So good to see you guys in the new year, 2022. Hard to believe we're saying those words today, isn't it? It's flown, flown by. So today I wanted to start a new series called Mission 2022. Mission 2022. It doesn't even sound right coming out. But I want us to look at this year, and I want us to see what does God have for Pole Creek in the coming year? How can we be the church that God has called us to be? Because, you know, complacency and comfort and apathy is not what we want. We want to be pushed out of our comfort zones. We want to see new things. We want to see people come to Christ. We want to see our community reached in ways that it never has before. As you guys are out in your everyday lives, whether it be at work or school or whatever it may be, you can attest to this, that there's no shortage of people who need to hear about Jesus. You know, we live in the Bible Belt. We live in Western North Carolina. There's Baptist churches everywhere. We think, man, we have got it good. Everybody here knows Jesus. Well, if you get out in the world real quickly, you'll find out that is not the case. In the place where there are more Bible-believing churches, there are still a lot of lost people. And I'm thankful that we as a church have always, from the inception of this church, has always been a mission-minded church. Pole Creek has always been evangelistic. Pole Creek has always been Bible-believing. Pole Creek has always understood the Great Commission, and that is that we are to make disciples in all nations. So even our vision statement, our vision statement is that we want to be a church that propels our community and world into an encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ which means everything that we do as a congregation needs to funnel through that vision. We need to understand that we are here for a purpose. We are not here for us. This is not a community club. This is not a civic organization. This is the church of God. And the church of God is to act as an army. We are to be soldiers. And we're not to be on the defense. We're to be on the offense. We're to be going and claiming and attacking and taking new territory. And we take new territory in the form of new souls. That's how the kingdom of God is furthered. And that is how God is ultimately glorified in our lives here and now on this planet. Is that we lead people to Jesus. I think if that was the last thing Jesus said, I think he meant that it was very important. You know, before Jesus ascended into heaven, the Great Commission was one of the very last things that he left with his great apostles and those who watched him ascend. The Great Commission is so, so important. So today, the title of my message is A Modern Message, A Modern Message. So the this, this, series here, this, as I work through this, I want us to understand that as we go through 2022, we need to focus on evangelism and reaching our community, just like the first century church did. That's why I've chosen, um, through the leading of the Spirit, for us to go through the book of Acts today. So today, sometimes it's good to get back to the basics. Sometimes it's good to get back, what did God's church, when it was birthed in the first century, what was it doing and what was it about? Because they didn't have all the, the distractions that we have today. You know, we have such a complex society today. Back then, it was very simple and it was very understandable that we go about preaching the word of God. So today, the message of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection, I want us to know, is based upon evidence. And modern-day skeptics should appreciate the facts. When I think about a modern message, you may think about a new twist on something that's old. Or you might think of something that's new that's never been heard of before. But my argument today is, is that the ancient message of the gospel found in the Bible, preached by John the Baptist, preached by the Lord Jesus Christ, preached by the apostles and the first century elders, 
is just as relevant today as it's always been. In the year 2022, we don't need a new message. We've already got a message fit for our modern society, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's really amazing how the modern-day world expects us to communicate. And I mean, even in my lifetime, and I still consider myself young, some of you may not, but even in my lifetime, it is amazing how exponentially uh, different everything is in our society today from even when I was in high school. Even what you were expected to do in society, in your circles of friends and in culture, how you were expected to communicate. Well, even today, we have what's known as the pronoun controversy. When you think about the pronoun controversy, things that we have taken for granted for many years and just assuming that a, a man is a man and a woman is a woman is no longer acceptable in our society and our culture. So it has affected the way that we communicate with people. Um, I know that I was exchanging emails with someone from Buncombe County the other day, and at the end of their email, it said, my preferred pronoun is her. Thankfully, it was a woman, and she chose, in my opinion, the right pronoun. But that is the way people communicate now. What is your preferred pronoun? What should I call you? Well, back in the day, you're either a dude or you're a girl. I mean, I don't know what we're trying to figure out here. It's, it, it's crazy, though, and, and it's a shock, isn't it? It's a shock to our systems because we're thinking, you know, the communication ways that, you know, that we remember is, is, are gone. Then we have the technology boom that's trained my generation and all the following generations to communicate with devices instead of verbally face-to-face. -face. So we've had that change in communication. And then on top of that... We've got the new COVID culture. COVID has also changed the way that we are expected to communicate in our society. You know, if you think about the, the luxury of seeing people's smiles at the grocery store, you don't get to see people's smiles like you used to. Did you ever think there'd be a day when you couldn't see someone's face because of a virus? But that's where we're at. And people understand that uh, facial expressions are a huge part of how we as human beings were made to communicate. There's so many different things. It's a shock to our system, and it's difficult. You may ask, if our means of communicating has changed, which it has undeniably, does that mean that the church needs to communicate a different message? And I would say no. I would say that we are trying to adapt as a church to better communicate to, to my generation and, and younger generations. Now, people are not going to necessarily want you to come knock on their door, even though we still do some of that. People are not necessarily even going to want you to call them anymore although we still do a lot of that. Nowadays, some people may just prefer a text or they may want you to uh, use social media or whatever it may be. So we're trying to adapt, and that's why we brought on Sarah Smith on our staff as our communications associate, because we want to be able to communicate with those who are in our community, but at the same time, the thing and the message that we're communicating is not changing. And as we look at this world, we find more and more people who are skeptics. And what a skeptic is, is it's someone who their first inclination is always to ask questions. Now, I will say that that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's good to ask questions. And really, not asking questions is what gets you in trouble as a society. Asking why. That's, that's a good question to ask. Why or how do you know? That should be a common question that we all ask. If you're sitting there in a university class and your professor is spewing off something at you and you think, man, this has no evidence, there's no backing to this, raise your hand and ask why. Now, if they're offended because you ask why, or if they're offended because you say, how do you know? Then they've got self-esteem problems. If you're going to believe something, you should at least be able to back it up by evidence. I should not be expected to believe something just because it's your preference or just because you kind of like it. If you want me to believe something, you need to have evidence to back up what you're trying to get me to believe. 
And I should not be so gullible as to turn the news on or to, to look on social media and believe the first thing that I see. And we've seen a ton of that these last couple of years. Conspiracy theories, news articles, news media, all the above expect you just to believe it just because some news anchor says it. And if you do that, you are a fool. And I'm just going to be very blunt with you today. You need to say why. Because here's what's going to happen is if we don't ask questions, then we're going to lose our children. We're going to lose our churches. We're going to lose our nation. So we need to be a people who ask questions, but we also need to be a people who are ready to answer questions. We need to be a people when we share the gospel and they ask, why? Why do you believe that? We need to be able to say why we believe it. And our answer should not be, oh, it's in the Bible, or well, I've just always believed it. Well, you just got to have faith. Listen, that doesn't work, okay? The world looks at that as a cop-out. They say, if you really strongly believe what you believe enough that you're willing to die for it, shouldn't you at least know why you believe it? And I think the issue with our churches today is, is that people are biblically illiterate. There's been studies done to show that people in the 1800s knew more of the Bible than people today. Now, in the 1800s, they did not have Bible apps. In the 1800s, they did not have 10, 15, 20 Bibles on their shelves collecting dust. In the 1800s, they did not have the luxury of having all the technology, the transportation, and all the, the benefits that we have today. But yet, they knew more Bible than we do. You could have asked someone in the 1800s, probably someone who's not even a Christian, about a particular Bible story, and they probably would have known it. They were taught it. They invested time in the Scripture. There's, the society was built upon Scripture. Today, we're not there. So as Christians, we've got to understand that we have to communicate differently than they did back then. You know, you used to see everywhere the big tent revivals. The reason you don't see those anymore is because people won't come to those. You can plan a revival, you can put out the word, you can advertise, and people will not come. I've talked to other preacher after preacher who spent time, money, and advertising to put up a tent revival, and nobody comes. It's because they're not going to come to us anymore. We've got to go to them. But when we go to them, we've got to take something to them that's worth listening to, that's worth hearing, that's got some backing that people can actually sink their teeth into. And that's why today I want to make the argument that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a modern message that has the evidence, that has the backing, that has the history, that has the documentation, that has everything someone needs to know who's a skeptic to answer all of their why questions. And today we're going to see that beginning in the book of Acts. So if you want to, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. So if you will, go ahead and turn your Bibles. Give you a moment to get there. And then once you found your place in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, please stand to your feet as we read God's Word. So we'll just simply read verses 1 through 3. The Bible says this, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful, Lord, that we indeed have convincing proofs. We don't have a fairy tale. We don't have a myth. We don't have some um, half-baked story that someone come up with. 
where we have an authenticated and verified factual historical account of the God of heaven becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the God of heaven dying on a cross and rising from the dead. And today, Lord, we understand that if you are logical and if you look at the evidence, there is more evidence to support the resurrection than there could ever be to disprove the resurrection. So today, God, as we look at your word, I pray that you would show us that we indeed have a modern message, a message, God, that will benefit the people in 2022, and a message that if we do not share it, and if we don't become creative in how we share it, potentially people will die and go to hell without it. So God, today, use us, lead us, and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here, we're going to find out, first of all, that the writer of Acts is Luke. He was known as a doctor. He was one of Paul's traveling mates who went with him on his missionary journeys. Luke was a great man of God, and Luke understood how to technically explain events. He understood the importance of documentation as doctors do. He understood the importance of science. He would have understood the importance of factually based information. And that's one reason why I love the fact that Luke not only wrote his own gospel, the book of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And today we have a very well-documented account of the birth of the first century church. Now here's the thing. When you read a fairy tale, okay, just think of any fairy tale you want to think of, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, Little Mermaid, whatever it may be, Disney movies, all the above, there is a great difference between a fairy tale and the Bible. Now, fairy tales claim to be fairy tales. They are presented as fairy tales. A lot of times you can understand a fairy tale very quickly by the terminology, once upon a time in a land far, far away. Well, immediately, the writer of fairy tale is not very concerned about years and months and dates. They're not very concerned about actual geographic locations. They're not even concerned about writing about real people who actually existed. It's all make-believe. And fairy tales are presented as make-believe. They're not presented as actual factual events that happened. Scripture, though, is different. Scripture actually claims to be historical and factual. Scripture actually gives details of actual geographic locations that have been proven to exist and exist to this day. Scripture uses actual real people and real names to define the people that are spoken of in Scripture. Scripture does not claim to be a myth or a fairy tale. Scripture claims to be a factual account of historical events that actually took place in real human history. So here's the issue. If you think about, let's say, you all know I'm a pastor, right? Well, as a pastor, guess what? I claim to be a pastor. Now, you come up to me and you say, Ben, you're not a pastor. You're a plumber. Okay, for one, I don't claim to be a plumber. And two, there's no evidence or proof that I'm a plumber. Ask my wife. See, that's the ignorance of claiming the Bible is a myth or a fairy tale. You really only have two options. If the Bible claims to be factual, historical events that took place in history, then it is one of two things. It is exactly what it claims to be, or is it an absolute lie? But you can't claim it to be something in the middle. It can't be both, just like me. If I claim to be a pastor, one of two possibilities are there. Either I am a pastor, or I'm not a pastor. But don't insinuate that I'm a plumber. Okay, that's like taking something from left field without any evidence and claiming that it's truth. 
We don't get that luxury in life. Logic does not allow us to do those kinds of things. And if you operate in a world where you do that, you're logical and nothing ever is going to track or follow. You yourself are going to remain confused for the rest of your life. So logic begs us to acknowledge that the Bible is either true historical factual events that took place in history or it's a big lie, but nothing in between. So the next time you hear someone say, you know what, the Bible is full of a bunch of fairy tales. Wrong. That's wrong. The Bible doesn't claim to be fairy tales, so therefore you can't make it a fairy tale just because that's what you want to believe. And that's really what it comes down to. When you get to the scripture like John the Baptist, who was preaching in the coming of Christ, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know what it's the most easy thing to do for a sinner? Oh, that's just a legend. That's just a myth. Because it makes them uncomfortable. I don't want to repent of my sins. I like how I like my sin. I, I want to continue in my rebellion. So I'm going, to, I'm, going to cop, I'm going to take a cop out on this. It's just a myth. It's just a myth. It's illogical. And in a philosophy class, that argument would never stand up because there's no evidence it's mythological or it's a fairy tale. And it itself doesn't even claim to be mythological or a fairy tale. Let us consider the addressee of Luke and Acts. So as Luke is writing the book of Luke, if you were to go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to find the mention of the same man in both Luke 1 and Acts 1. It's a man named Theophilus. You may say, well, Ben, why in the world is Theophilus important at all? Well, this is who Luke was writing the letters to. I wrote in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the first narrative, Theophilus. So the first narrative he's referring to is the gospel of Luke. So he wrote Luke and Acts to this individual man who actually existed in the first century named Theophilus. You may say, well, how do we know Theophilus was even a real person? Well, if you go back in records, whether it be Roman records or Jewish records of the first century, you're going to find that Theophilus was actually not so rare of a name. It was actually one that was used to a certain extent. And there's four different people that biblical scholars theorize could be this Theophilus two of whom were served as Jewish high priests, one of whom was a high-ranking Roman official, and the fourth was a very wealthy man in the city of Antioch. Now, you may say, Ben, I mean, has somebody made up these, these four different Theophiluses? No. There is historical documentation that these men existed in the first century. Is it in the Bible, Ben? No. It's actually outside of the Bible. It's extra-biblical sources. It's census records. It's um, uh, early church historian records. So when people start to say the Bible, you can't just use the Bible to verify itself, which we know we can because it's inspired by the Word of God. But if they really want us to use some outside sources, we can get those too. Did you know that? The Bible not only testifies of itself, but documented history also testifies of the Bible. So now if I've got a, a, a bunch of evidence here, and I'm saying, okay, what does the bulk of the evidence that I have before me point to? Is there evidence that I found that says Theophilus was made up? Is there evidence that I found that says Luke was a drug addict? Is there evidence that I found that said Luke was known to lie? Is there evidence? No. Actually, the evidence that you're going to have in your lap all point to the fact that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. He was a real person. He lived in that part of the world. He indeed died on the cross, and the tomb indeed was empty on the third day. Now, for anyone to say otherwise is going against the evidence at hand. 
They've not found evidence contrary to it, but what they say is, is I don't like what the evidence points to. So I'm going to make up my own story. It's a fairy tale. You can't do that. You know, there's a lot of things in history that I don't like, but the evidence says it happened. Therefore, I have to understand that and accept that. So when we think about that, we understand that Christianity is not just some fairy tale. It's not just some made-up myth. It's not like the Greek gods. You know, when you think about the Greek gods, I saw this Facebook post the other day, and it had nine different gods. It had like Hermes and Hercules. It had the Buddha. It even had Jesus on it. And basically, it claimed that all nine of these deities were born during Christmas. Basically, they're trying to undermine Jesus is what they were doing by putting this up problem is is that all those other deities actually buddha himself there's actually a um writings from the buddha who he himself said i am not a god but people have made him something that he himself claimed he wasn't so even by posting that these people were deities which means gods is actually going against what those individuals said about themselves except jesus he actually claimed to be god but then all these other figures like hercules it's legend There's no historical evidence. There's no documentation. There's no proof. It was written as legend. Have any of you guys ever watched the Disney movie Hercules and actually thought that Hercules really existed? I hope you don't raise your hand if you did. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's a legend. It's a myth. It's a fairy tale. But when you read about Jesus, hey, Was it meant to be taken as a fairy tale? Do you get that from the Bible as you read it? No. It's meant to be taken literally as a real person who actually existed in history. And that's the difference. So the first thing that I wanted you guys to see, if you're taking notes, what does the scripture itself claim to be? And we just spoke very clearly of that. The scripture itself, when you look at verses 1 and 2 of Acts, claims to be factual, historical accounts of real people real places, and real events. Listen how it's written again, verses 1 and 2. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. You see real people mentioned in those first two verses. You see events mentioned. You see a chronology, which is an order of events expressed. Everyone knows that when you account an event, an actual event that takes place, it is very important for you to get the order correct. There needs to be a specific order to the event so that you can properly communicate what happened. And here we see Luke being very careful to mention an order to the events. He spoke of the first narrative. He mentioned Theophilus. He then said in the first narrative, which was the book of Luke, I began to speak about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So in Luke, you have the life of Jesus. All that he began to do and teach is what you find in the book of Luke. Until the day he was taken up. And that's indeed what you find in the book of Luke. You end Luke with the ascension of Jesus Christ. He's saying, listen, the book of Luke was written to account the actual, real life activities of a real man named Jesus Christ. It's not meant to be fairy tale. It's not meant to be fake. It's meant to be factual. And then he says this, verse 2, until the day he was taken up after. So so let's go ahead and talk about another event that happened before he was taken up in that he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Luke is not writing a fairy tale here. 
He's writing about things that he has factually authenticated by talking to eyewitnesses who actually knew Jesus, saw Jesus, and witnessed his ascension into heaven. It's very important for us not to make something to be something that itself doesn't claim to be. Don't call me a plumber when you know I'm a pastor, okay? That might be offensive a little bit, not to you plumbers, though, okay? It's just that I couldn't be a plumber. Um, <laughs> and I heard you laugh. Yeah. All right, digging my hole here. All right, so the first thing is, what does Scripture itself claim to be? We know that it claims to be historical fact. The second question is, why should you even believe it? Okay, it's fine if it claims to be historical fact, but just claiming to be historical fact never made it historical fact. Again, we have crazy people who write things who they want, they want to lie to you. They want you to believe things that aren't true. Well, the first part of verse 3 shows us what, why we should believe Scripture. So Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. I like the word proof. Because if I'm going to believe something that affects where I'm going to spend eternity, I would really like to know that it's true. Now, there's a lot of different ways. I'm not trying to take the Holy Spirit's activity out of this and make this just a purely logical situation. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to the fact and the truth of Scripture. The Bible teaches us that none seek after God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So on my own abilities, I'm not going to seek God, the Bible teaches me. The Holy Spirit must come and draw me, okay? But he opens our eyes to believe it. But if I'm talking to a skeptic and they're asking me, Ben, why should I believe this thing about God in Jesus? Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the actual evidence that's available to us. And from the available evidence, let's make a conclusion. Doesn't everyone else do that too? Don't lawyers do that? Don't judges do that? Don't juries do that? Don't detectives do that? They take the evidence and they make a conclusion based upon the evidence. That's an accepted way to figure out what things actually happen, what things are actually true. If you take it as a lie, though, if you're someone who says, oh, the Bible's a lie, Ben, I'm not going to believe it, it's too weird. Uh, I've never seen stuff like that happen, so it can't be true. Well, I'm going to tell you to go find some evidence. I don't care what you think about it. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if you think it's weird. It's not for you to determine what truth is. You need to give me some evidence. Ben, you know, there's no way Jesus walked on water. There's no way. Prove it. See, here's the thing. The burden of proof does not lie on us because we've got the evidence and we're basing our conclusions on the evidence. The burden of proof lies at the feet of the skeptics. You think about Lee Strobel. I don't know if any of y'all have read that story, but Lee Strobel was a renowned journalist at the Chicago Tribune, someone who was so intelligent, I believe he had a doctorate in journalism, he was a professing atheist. He said, I don't believe in any of that junk. Uh, God's not real. There's no way he's real. His wife ends up getting saved. He has an issue with that, of course, because he felt like Jesus had taken his wife away from him. So he said, I'm going to set out and I'm going to prove that Christianity is, is false and it's a lie. So he talked to some theologians. He said, what would I have to disprove in order to make Christianity a lie? And they said, well, Christianity hinges on the resurrection. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead after his death, then you've disproven Christianity. And Christianity has no leg to stand on. So he set out, using all the resources he had at his fingertips, all the journalism skills that he had, all the processing skills that he had, the staff that he had, and he said, I'm going to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So he started digging through ancient records, started using the Bible, started talking to theologians, he started talking to scientists, he started talking to atheists, he started talking to all these people. He had all the evidence up on the board, and he sat there and he broke down. Because you know where the evidence pointed? Jesus indeed rose from the dead. There's nothing in history, there's nothing documented that says there was a body in that tomb, by the way. Every account, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture, says that tomb was empty. Wow. So now what? Where's our evidence pointing? What conclusion can we make? Wait a minute. The Bible did say that it was empty. The stone was rolled away. The apostles saw it with their own eyes. The women saw it with their own eyes. There were some 500 people who saw Jesus in his resurrected body. I'm sorry, you might can tell me five are crazy, but it's going to be real hard to prove to me 500 are that crazy. They saw him. Hey, and they testified to it. Paul himself, 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to make a note of that passage, Paul himself making the case for the resurrection, names and lists the different groups of people who saw Jesus in his resurrected body and said that some of these are alive today. You know what that meant? It meant Paul had access to their testimonies. It meant Paul could have gone and visited with them and said, tell me about when you saw Jesus after he was crucified. Tell me about when you saw him in his resurrected body. And they could have sat there and gave him a factual testimony account of what they saw with their own two eyes. And then Paul wrote it down. Luke wrote it down. Hey, the disciples who actually wrote books themselves, first-hand accounts, saw Jesus, knew Jesus, saw Jesus' resurrected body, saw him eat fish, after he had died, knowing that it wasn't just a ghost, but it was a physical body that was resurrected. And they wrote it down. But it's just a fairy tale, right? It's just a fairy tale. Where's your evidence? Quit telling me to prove it. I've got the evidence. I've got the documentation. I've got the backing. I've got 2,000 years of church history that has, by the way, never been proven wrong. I've got 2,000 years of theological research that says, indeed, Jesus rose from the dead. But it's just a myth. Just a fairy tale. You start to see how illogical that argument is? doesn't make sense. If five people see a man kill somebody, and the world says, y'all are crazy, this guy killed him, we're going to say, what, five witnesses? That's plenty to, to convict a man. We've got 500 and more that say Jesus rose from the dead. It's time we start looking at the evidence. And I'm telling you, this is a modern message. This is a message that a skeptic should be able to sink their teeth into. University professors should be able to sink their teeth into. And Christians need to stop going into discussions about the Bible thinking that they're already behind. Thinking that they're going to lose automatically. Listen, the evidence is on our side. Here's the thing that we need to do as a church. We're looking at 2022. We're looking at reaching our community for the gospel. We need to get better at arguing for our faith. We need to get better at knowing how to talk to a skeptical person about Jesus. You know what that means? We've got to put a little work into it. We've got to study. We've got to come to classes when we say, hey, we're going to give you the opportunity to know how to share your faith, and we're going to give you two different times to do it, and we're going to make it as convenient for you as possible. We're going to cover the cost of the materials, the 10-week commitment, one day a week for about an hour and a half, by the end of the 10 weeks, you're going to know how to share your faith. Hey, boy, I'd jump on that, wouldn't you? Guess what? we got them open right now. Wednesday, we've got zero people signed up. Sunday evening, we've got about six. 
And last time I checked, we've got about 330 to 340 people attending here every Sunday. And my goal is for 50% of our attenders to be trained to share their faith by the end of the year. I'm telling you, I ain't gonna, I'm not going to meet that goal. I'm going to look like a fool. At the end of the year, I'm going to say, we, we trained 25 people. Man, I'm going to blame y'all. I'm going to be so mad. Believe me. And Hannah's going to have to deal with me at home. I promise you. No, I'm just kidding. I love you guys, and I know you're busy. I know there's a lot of things going on. But I want you to see how real this is and how important this it is. And lastly, I want us to see, okay, so what does the scripture claim to be? It claims to be historical, factual. Why should we believe it? Because there's evidence after evidence after evidence. But lastly, it's kind of so what unless we consider what the Bible's trying to communicate. Yeah, we can factually authenticate it, but why is it so important? What is the central message that this Bible, and I'm not talking about just the New Testament. I'm talking about from Genesis to Revelation. What is the central theme that this entire book is trying to communicate? And you can round up the entire purpose of this Bible in one sentence. So now that we've verified it, let's look at why it's important. We see that alluded to in the second part of verse 3, Acts chapter 1. The Bible says this. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what he's saying here is, is that the convincing proofs were in the fact that Jesus was appearing to these people after he had risen from the dead. Proving that he indeed rose. Proving that he indeed was God. And then he said, while he was doing this though, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. He did not just appear to these people silent. He brought a message back from the grave, if you will. And I think that message is what's going to round up and sum up the entire meaning of this Bible. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, if you will. We're going to, we're going to stay with the same writer. And we're going to see, what was Jesus doing when he came back those 40 days? What was he trying to communicate? And I believe if we can figure out what Jesus was trying to communicate, then we can take that message and we can take it to the world today. And it will change lives. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25, the Bible says this. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. To give a little background to this, this is what's known as the Emmaus Road. This is one of the appearances that Jesus made after his resurrection. And as he's walking with these two disciples, they have no clue it's Jesus. But they're, they're sad because they just lost Jesus. This was very shortly after he had been crucified. It was very shortly after there was even claims made that he had risen from the dead. But they were confused and they were frightened and they were scared. And this is the message that Jesus had for them. Verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory. You go on to verse 36, and the Bible continues here. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst, post-resurrection. He said to them, peace to you, but they were startled and terrified, and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. In other words, look where those nails pierce me. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet, but while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? 
So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, and now that was very, very important because it proved that he wasn't a ghost. Verse 44, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's talking about Genesis to Micah in your Bibles. He's talking about those books, okay? So he's showing us that this all is one constant meaning and theme. It said this um, in verse 46. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's it. That's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's summing it up right there. Jesus died, he rose again, so that we can repent of our sins and have eternal life. And today that is that modern message that I'm talking about. That modern message that is founded in, defined by factual evidence that is indisputable. Today, facts and history is on your side as a Christian today. We've got the winning hand. We've got the upper hand. It's kind of like Alabama playing Cincinnati. We're Alabama, believe it or not. Some of you won't admit that, but we are. Because we've got that back in us. And I'm so thankful to our Lord and our Savior for that. So today, take advantage of the classes. What are y'all laughing about? Take advantage of the classes. Be faithful to the house of God. And I'm telling you that if we'll stay focused on reaching our community and world with the gospel, we're going to start to see some great things happen. But you've got to stay focused. You've got to keep your priorities straight, and you've got to invest in learning how to share your faith.